RA Exchange. Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome Daniel Avery, a London-based DJ and producer who cut his teeth at Fabric, where he's been a longtime resident and curator of the night Divided Love, which will return for a new edition in early March. Before becoming a Fabric regular, Daniel grew up in the UK town of Burnmouth, where his musical diet consisted of shoegaze, post-punk, electroclash, and indie. He brought these influences to bear when he relocated to London and became immersed in nightlife. There, he started working at the now-defunct Pure Groove record shop and met artists like Errol Alkin and Andrew Weatherall, who were fusing the sounds of guitar bands with techno and electronic music for the dance floor. Soon Daniel had his own studio next to Weatherall's, who became his longtime mentor, and started warming up the dance floor at Fabric on a regular basis. His debut album, Drone Logic, was released to critical acclaim in 2013, and has been followed by six more full-lengths and a number of EPs and singles since. He's also collaborated with artists like Alessandro Cortini from Nine Inch Nails, and together they released a beautiful ambient electronica EP called Illusion of Time. In our interview, Daniel and I talk about the unexpected success of Drone Logic and how its release literally changed his life and thrust him into the spotlight. Drone Logic, my first album, 2013, before anyone knew who I was, you know, the classic debut album story, there's no expectation, so you're entirely free. And then all of a sudden, DJing became who I was. We also touched on his wide range of influences and how he's taken a punkish palette of sounds and made them his own. Daniel's also had to strike a balance between being a DJ and a producer, which has forced him to look at his relationship with nightlife and real life and embark on a quest to take the time to look within. As he poignantly reflects in our talk, there have been times when he's felt lost, musically and otherwise, as he's navigated a non-stop touring schedule. But he's recently been able to reclaim the joy he felt when he first stepped foot into the studio. This has led him to an exciting new project and new collaborations that he talks about towards the end of this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation and Daniel's very open and vulnerable thoughts on creativity and life. So please stay tuned until the end. Thanks so much for listening. Without further ado, here's the one and only Daniel Avery. Hello, Daniel Avery. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. So where were you this weekend? I was in sunny Margate, not known as the uh, clubbing capital of the UK, but it's, it's great. A place called Faith in Strangers. It was a great night. Okay, nice. I was looking back at your coverage on RA because we've covered you for quite a long time. Yeah. And your first major piece of coverage was a feature called The Increasingly Less Quiet Life of Daniel Avery, and it was written in 2012. Have things become more or less quiet for you <laughs> since then? Well, 2012, um, that's a long time ago. That was a, a very uh, astute title. My life's become far busier in those years. It probably peaked at one point in the fact that I definitely try and find far more 
quiet moments in life now. But yeah, it's cool that RA's been along for the ride the whole time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, could you have anticipated at that point in your career that things would have happened the way that they have over the last 12 years? No idea. Yeah. No idea. Um, Music has always been a, a real passion of mine, a real hobby. And my hobby became my job about that time no idea where it was gonna go well i do want to talk about that but um first i actually wanted to discuss your party because you're celebrating the anniversary of divided love yeah so that's happening at fabric in a couple of weeks and the lineup is very eclectic but also very true to you um so you have dj nobu wada igarashi lena willikins vladimir ichkovic daria kolosova and Manami on the lineup, mm-hmm. who I know you've called your Sonic siblings on an Instagram yeah, post. Yeah, so could you talk yeah, a little definitely. bit about that? And also a good friend of mine, Toshi Goto, is playing back-to-back with Manami. Uh, so 2012, when the article was written, uh, was also the year I made my Fabric Live CD for that series. And Fabric have really been a, a crucial part of, of my entire journey. And they really supported me when... No one knew who I was, and they gave me chances to warm up for heroes, and then I became a real like regular. And so, yeah, the Fabric Live CD, they gave me the opportunity. No one knew who I was. That, then my debut album came out the following year, which was called Drone Logic, and the combination of those two things really, like, that's what caught fire. That's what started the fire. And then the following year, Fabric asked if I wanted to start my own night, but they were keen that it wasn't just about techno because they knew that I came from a, a kind of a different background. So the first one was Helena Hauf, Doppler Effect played live, Factory Floor played live. Um, dream lineup. It was, it was. <laughs> and and so it was my take on, you know, what I would want to go to a club to see. But yeah, the live element and the eclecticism was vital and yes we are reviving the night and um 10 years on and yeah same ethos identical ethos in fact oh that's exciting yeah and you're also going to be releasing on fabric originals yeah yeah so it just felt like a good time to do it i've been we've been talking about doing a release forever i've just made two tracks pure club tracks of how i hear room one in my head at fabric I know that room inside out. I've played there so many times and I love the sound of it and the feeling of it and the atmosphere. Two tracks, yeah, and a 12-inch. And I really like it when circles complete themselves and I've definitely got a few that I hold very dear linked to fabric, you know. Well, I want to kind of go back to the beginning. You grew up in, I might mispronounce this, Bournemouth? Yeah, Bournemouth. (laughs) So your musical diet was kraut rock, shoegaze, post-punk, all these genres that are very close to my heart, but actually which I probably wouldn't have associated with fabric. So what compelled you to get into electronic music rather than the rock world? Well, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be in the rock world. I wanted to be in a band. That was where I I thought if it went anywhere, it might go. Saying that, you know, the entire time I was into all of that music and still, you know, still very much into it, I was listening to electronic music as well. So things like Chemical Brothers and Underworld and Bjork and Massive Attack and Portishead and that whole era. I liked that music. And to me, they just sat alongside, those albums sat alongside my records by My Bully Valentine or Deftones or whatever. They just sat next to each other. The idea of clubbing didn't figure at all for me. I guess 
growing up somewhere like Bournemouth where it, it's 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 a can be quite a tacky place and quite a, a low rent place you know which makes a lot of its money from uh hen parties stag bachelor parties you know that sort of crowd you know and so to me growing up as a a kid with long hair like the people i saw going to those that's what i thought clubbing was i didn't have any other idea you know so it wasn't until i discovered dj's like uh, andrew weatherall or Errol Alcan, Ivan Smag, people who I felt had a way more of like a left field approach to it all. And who also talked about bands that I liked. Even though they were playing techno and electronic music, they were doing it with a sort of, I don't know, they were presenting it in a way that appealed to me. And that's really how it started for me. And then at the same time, I discovered this tiny little night in a basement in Bournemouth called Project Mayhem, which was playing all of these things together. So we'd be playing Can records or Stooges records, but also a lot of like the electro clash that was about at the time and a lot of the new bands that were coming out. And it all kind of made sense to me in that moment. I just used to hang about there every single weekend to the point where Matt, the guy who ran it, he, um, he asked if I wanted to play some music to to open up the night i never until that point i'd never once considered djing just wasn't you know (laughs) i loved music and i made cassettes for people for friends but i never once considered the idea of djing but the second i did i just fell in love with the idea of sharing music in that way i just immediately got it i don't like the, the first time i ever did it i immediately loved the feeling of it and that's that was that was 20 years ago I know that you said in an interview once that your love of music as a fan almost inhibited you at one point from envisioning yourself as an artist. Yeah. You know, I, I idolized any musician, even if they were just in a small band on tour in Bournemouth, you know, anyone who was up there doing that is what other people did. And whilst I was still making music in my bedroom, you know, with a little four track recorder and a little drum machine and stuff, I never considered that I could, I don't know, it just wasn't, I just don't know why. It just didn't seem like it. I think I just idolized these people so greatly that it seemed like they had come from a different place. And I, yeah, it's, 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 I don't know. I don't really have a better answer for you than that, but it just didn't seem like anything that I could do almost. Yeah, no, but I, I can relate to that directly. Yeah, yeah. Did you get any kind of formal musical training going no. on? No, none. <laughs> I didn't. Even, I didn't like music at school or anything like that. Just the idea of making music and being a fan of music—they just didn't cross over for for me at that point. Yeah, it was DJing that really kind of was the gateway into this life I have now. If the DJing had never come along, I don't think I would be sat here as a producer. Interesting. I might be wrong, but I don't think so. So you moved to London in 2007 and it Mm. seems like the relationship with Fabric happened really organically almost right from the beginning. So can you remember what that was like? Yeah. When I say Fabric supported me from the beginning, I'm really talking about a guy called Sean Roberts, who we, we sadly lost last year. Just an incredible person. And he was the main booker of Fabric on a Friday night. Yeah, I just started warming up for parties, you know, for, you know, no money and playing the, to empty rooms or rooms that were just filling up. But to just be given that opportunity to be on a lineup alongside these people, it was, you know, that was enough for me. Really, like, if I had never gone above that level, 
I still would have been happy. Mm. And it just felt so natural. And they they trusted me from the beginning. And Sean trusted me. I owe a lot to that guy, you know. I grew up in the U.S. and I currently live in Berlin. So fabric isn't really part of my life. So could you just maybe describe a little bit how the ethos of the club has really shaped your yeah. your artistic trajectory? Yeah. I think my favorite thing about Fabric is for 25 years now, they've presented underground music with the passion of something that was far bigger than that. They put so much emphasis and love into every detail. Before I ever went now, I used to collect the flyers because back then the flyers would make their way down to you know, anywhere within like a two-hour two radius of London, really. So we would get them in Bournemouth and they were just these works of art every time that folded out and, you know, you could put them as posters on your wall. And then similarly with the fabric CDs where they come in these like beautiful metallic tins and like, for instance, a lot of the guitar bands that I loved, the fabric seemed to present things on a on a scale that felt it could sit alongside these things. Everything felt important there. Every night felt important. Every CD was important. It wasn't throwaway. It was, it had a weight to it. And and they've continued to do that for 25 years. And yeah, they're, and they're all great people as well. You know, they're, it's rare. And they've had their ups and downs, but they're still here. And there's a lot to be said for that, I think. Mm. I really need to make it to a night because I think... The last time I went was about 10 years ago. <laughs> so yeah. next time. Yeah. Um, as you were starting your DJ career at Fabric, you were simultaneously working at a record shop called Pure Groove, yeah. which closed. And you said that in the moment that it shuttered, you had to make a decision on what your next steps would be and that it required this huge leap of faith. Can you talk about that and what ultimately pushed you to decide to pursue your yeah. own music? When I first moved to London, really, and I was getting these warm-up gigs in Fabric and a few other places around, I could feel my confidence in what I was offering growing. I, I you know, I knew I had owned good records. You know, I, I was never worried about that, but I felt that I was so young at the time, my early 20s, and I could feel that, okay, maybe if I could take the, the music-making side of things seriously, I think I might have something to say here, or at least my very own voice which is all that ultimately matters anyway and I'd been starting to make stuff and I I felt that I was getting somewhere with it and yeah Pure Groove sadly shut and I was considering do I just go and work in another record shop or something else in music but I just thought okay it might be now or never and I can either keep selling music for other people or I could try and offer my voice to the world in some form. Again, I had no idea where it would go. No aspirations other than wanting to... Tell you what I thought. I thought I wanted to make a record that could sit in a collection above anything else. It wasn't about traveling the world or, you know, superstardom or anything. It was, I want to make a record that someone can own and put in their record collection alongside other records that they cherish. And that's a going to last when I'm long gone. That's what really drove me. It's like, okay, I can make a go of this. And 
at least attempt to, I would have been annoyed at myself if, if I'd never tried it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how it started, really. That's where the best art comes from, though. I think when you have no real attachment to the outcome other than yeah. just creating one piece of art. Yeah. yeah. You ended up moving into a studio near the Thames River. I'm pronouncing that correctly, nice. right? That's good. <laughs> Do you still have that studio? I'm still there. Okay. Yeah, I've been there for over over 10 years. Wow. And and I know that that particular space has ended up being really significant, not just because it's where you've created all this work, but because it was located next to Andrew Weatherall's studio, who became a really close Mm. mentor to you. There's actually two studios involved here. Okay. There are two important things here. So the one by the water is where I still am now. And I'm actually next door to Richard Fearless, who is a good friend of mine. I always loved his band Death in Vegas and one of my favorite DJs. The Weatherall Studio, I also met Weatherall through Fearless, which was in Shoreditch, a place called The Bunker. So, yes, sorry, the Weatherall's I was just kind of borrowing now and again. And he was there. But, um, yeah, the other one by the water is mine well, I, want, I did want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Andrew yeah, because sure. I know sure. you, you've commented on how his relationship with his studio actually was really inspiring yeah. to you because he would go in every day, I guess, and yeah. really treat it like a job. Yeah. So is that something, did you start modeling your own career a little bit after what he was doing with his? In some way, yeah. Uh, the most inspiring thing I saw down there was, yeah, he would be in everyday and even if he wasn't making music, he would be consuming art in some way. He was all about just leading an artistic life. And it was that that I found so inspiring. He would just go in, listen to other records, read books, create paintings. And as long as he was doing something like that in a day, he would be happy. Hmm. What's better than that yeah. as a life, you know? So, yeah, I, I try and do the same, you know watch as many films as I can, for instance, or read as much as I can. And it just sounds really simple. But um, No, but it, it's hard in this day and age, I think, when there's, it seems like there's so much pressure also just to create content and yeah. not actually to just have time to absorb yeah. art. I'd probably say most producers feel this, that they lock themselves in the studio and bang their head against the wall. And they have like a week where they're like, I've done nothing good here. And they just become so frustrated. You know, I've done that plenty of times, but um, there's much more to it than that. Like, how can you expect to make anything if you're just closing yourself off from other art around you, particularly living in a city like London or any city where there's that that buzz and excitement of creatives around? You have to absorb it. And um, that's part of the process, you know, and that's what, Andrew was so, so grateful. Hmm. Tangentially, I'm reading Brian Eno's diary right oh, now. Go on. I was just about to, I was just about to bring up Eno. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I'm only partway through, but I found it really interesting that there are so many days when he talks about going to the studio and kind of a, accomplishing quote unquote nothing or just fooling around in Photoshop yeah. um, and taking long breaks to go have dinners with friends. And it's so not what I would have pictured. Yeah. And also just being really open about um yeah, feeling like he contributed nothing to a recording session or just like yeah. questioning his own value as an artist. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, interesting to think that people of all levels <laughs> have to go through this process. I think, it's, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that. The Eno quote I was thinking of is, um, 
I, I'm going to butcher it, but something along the lines of don't be afraid of, of something if it feels easy, i.e. some people think that, okay, the track's only good if I've worked on it for, you know, two months or whatever, whereas sometimes a track can actually emerge in half an hour and it can be one of your best things. This is why I think just laboring over something for way too long and not um, exposing yourself to, yeah, like he says, even friends or other art or warming your brain in some other capacity, you know, it's, um, you know, another good friend of mine, Roman Flugel said to me once that, um, he doesn't mind bad days in the studio because that's what life is. You have good days and you have bad days and a, and a bad day is going to educate you as much as a good day would. So a day when you go in and you do nothing, you've still gone in and you've still, you've attempted something, you know, and, um, yeah, it's a wise, a wise man, our Roman. <laughs> well, I would like to talk more about your relationship with Andrew, if you're open sure. to it, because I know you did have a very close relationship mm. and you've talked about it in mm. quite a few interviews. So, I mean, what were some of the key lessons that you learned mm. from working so closely with him? I should begin by saying the fact that Andrew would never have called himself a mentor or a teacher he would not have liked that. He was someone who was very aware of his own flaws and mistakes that he had made and wouldn't want anyone to try and emulate him. But saying that he was without question one of the wisest people I've ever met and and funniest and just decent a decent soul. There are a few simple lessons I noticed from him Never stop saying please and thank you to anyone you work with. And don't be a dick to anyone you're working with. If you be yourself, no one can take anything away from you. Mm. If you attempt to be something you're not and then you get it wrong, then you're in a mess. If you do something genuine and you, you have your own voice, then what's the worst that can happen? Someone could say they don't like it. Who cares what they think, you know? You've done something that's true to you. Yeah. I can't really think of any other lesson that's been more important to me, you know? Mm. So I'd like to talk about your own studio practice. You notoriously use a mix of vintage hardware and then in-the-box yeah. plugins. Yeah. Has this always been how you've created music since you started mm. moving into the more, the production space? Yeah, yeah. When I was in my teens I was making music with guitars and a four track and a real crap drum machine so I think just from carrying on that idea when I first began making music I was very into using real hardware but honestly as the years have gone on and as I sit here today I use more and more stuff just in the box and I really like the points where real machines and modern technology intersect I think why would you not try and you know use everything at your disposal you know that's how I feel about it it's just it's always been a mixture of, of different stuff and I definitely don't feel like a, a studio purist that's for sure mm. no. it makes sense with your proclivity for shoegaze and punk mm. that you there would be some analog stuff involved there's a certain in the fuzz to that yeah. stuff that I really like you can inject that that sensibility through computers as well and I just love using everything I can. That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Moods and atmospheres 
play a really large role yeah. in your work. And so I, I can really clearly hear how your, yeah, your roots in more like punky rock mm. meet techno. Technically, how are you doing this? I mean, so you mentioned you use analog gear mm. and taking advantage of that kind of the fuzz sound, but is there anything else that you kind of tried to mm. borrow, I guess, from the rock production technique? I wouldn't say the technique. I've never read up on how bands I like really make those sounds, but I guess what I've done is listen to those records and try to interpret what I like about them. Mm -hmm. The idea of shoegaze music having beauty buried in noise really appeals to me. Mm. So waves and waves of distortion and reverb and noise, but underpinning it or having a song or a, a beautiful melody or something. The boom of a techno kick appeals to the metal kid in me growing up. There's something about that. There's something about the depth of that of that kick. That's something I've always tried to inject as well. But beyond that, no, there's no techniques... I couldn't sit here and give you an hour on studio techniques yeah. <laughs> because it's just experimentation as much as anything else, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know you also use field recordings quite a bit, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that really came about from when I started working down in my studio where I am now. It's right next to the water and there's just loads of beautiful ambient noise and uh -huh. using contact mics and recording, <laughs> even the wind, you know, and... It just works as a layer of fuzz or haze in a track. Even if you can't audibly hear it, you can feel it. And when it when you take it away, you can really feel it. I just love that. I don't like clean sounding records, really. Yeah. It has to have some kind of grit to it. Yeah. Do you have like a window out to the water in your yeah, studio? Yeah, oh, I do. God, I, I do. Amazing. It's it's a huge part of the sound, I think. Just being down there, it's so peaceful and serene and... Um, yeah, you can make a lot of noise there if you want to. And yeah, it's important. It's also not the easiest place to get to. And I think that's really helped as well because you have to make a bit of effort to get down there. It feels like work in a good way. That's how I like to view it, you know. How often are you usually going? I try and go, say, three times a week probably. Again, I'm not in there all the time. But I found that I've been quite productive in there. If I do it that way, yeah. Mm. You've also collaborated with some really amazing artists. Mm. And uh, your collaboration with Alessandro Cortini is, I think, my favorite work that you've done. Thanks, it's yeah. what, Illusion of Time. Yeah, it's one of my favorites too. Yeah, he actually, he played in London this weekend. Yeah, and I yeah, unfortunately missed, missed it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How did that collaboration come about? Because I know you also ended up touring with Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. yeah. Nine Inch Nails is one of my favorite bands of all time. And... Um, I had heard that they were playing some of my music before they went on stage. I just thought it must be bollocks, you know. <laughs> but then I heard a few other people tell me that. And um, and then it turns out that it was actually Alessandro who introduced the band to my stuff. And we just got talking on Twitter, I think, and um, just had a real mutual appreciation of each other. And just decided, well, let's try and... Let's try and uh, make some music somehow. We sent a couple of things back and forth to each other. In fact, we didn't meet for a long time, but we made two tracks that we felt were really, we both loved them, Sun and Water, and I was playing a festival in LA, which Nine Inch Nails were also playing. We decided let's try and do something special for this, and we made a, um, a seven inch, we just did 50 copies of a seven inch, 
and we just sold them at the merch stand just oh, at the wow. festival. That's so cool. Yeah, and then and then we just kept going, and then all of a sudden, when I was on that Nine Inch Nails tour in America, we had a day off in New York, and I went round to Alessandro's place and laid out what we had, and we said, I think there might be an album here, and that was that again, incredibly organic. Yeah. But that was the only day we spent in the room together making the album. Wow. Everything else was done remotely, sending. I call it like almost like sending like these little like electronic love letters back to each other, you know, like from all of, you know, as we were both traveling around the world and different time zones and yeah, it was incredibly natural. But yeah, one of my favorite pieces, I think. I love the record. Yeah, it's yeah. really it's really nice. I was, because uh, I'm, I'm kind of rarely in London and my favorite place to go when I'm here is the Barbican. Yeah, and so I was place, preparing yeah. for this interview, listening to the album. Awesome, yeah, yeah. Surrounded by the Barbican energy. Yeah, yeah. it's really nice. Yeah. Um, you also had a lot of collaborations on your last album yeah. that came out. Um, can you talk about some of those and how you chose mm. to work with each of those artists? Yeah, it feels like it's opening up a new side of what I do and I'm really enjoying it and yeah, particularly in Ultra Truth the last album yeah that was the, the most I've done um, I've had contact in some way with I think pretty much everyone so you've got Janine from the band Hate Rock who's just one of my favorite bands Damn. I've just wanted to to utilize her voice in some way for so long and that was kind of a dream come true that collaboration um but then there's artists like Hive, one of my best friends so she sings on two tracks kelly lee owens returned she is the voice of drone logic so that's 10 years ago we worked together in pure groove the record shop oh, wow. <laughs> that's another circle completing herself <laughs> so yeah kelly came back for that and then people like sherelle you know been friends with from the road and just wanted her her voice in some capacity on it james messiah just a really like incredible voice and poet and so he closes the album again all felt very natural. Yeah. Uh, Marie Davidson's on there too, like a real punk spirit and an yeah. electronic artist, you know. The new stuff I'm working on right now is leaning even harder into the world of collaboration. It feels great. I'm really enjoying it. Can you reveal who you're collaborating with? Uh, I'm not going to yet. Okay. But it's shaping up. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting because when I see some of these names on paper, the people you've selected for your night at Fabric and some of the people yeah. you've collaborated with and my first impression is like oh it's so all over the board but then actually when I hear it and I I hear it within the context of yeah. your work it actually does make a lot of sense yeah so yeah yeah I think there is a line to be drawn between all these artists in their own way yeah I think so I think they all much like what got me into this scene in the in the beginning they all come at things I guess with like a left field stance on it, I guess. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's I the best that. way of describing it. Yeah. yeah. So you seem like an artist who's really deeply oriented towards a production practice, but your DJ career has really taken off as you've put out more and more mm. releases. So how would you characterize your relationship with nightlife and with DJing versus with your time in the studio? I've always loved DJing. It's always... Like I said, from the moment I started it, it felt like I was kind of at home. For someone who had never considered even going clubbing, the idea of being in a DJ booth just felt, yeah, like strangely comfortable. So, yeah, you know, club, you know, clubbing is still a huge part of what I do. It informs every moment in the studio as well, even if I'm not making 
club music. It's it's there somewhat. You know, the there's something in all my music. I think that you know, even the ambient record with Cortini, I think has you can hear elements of techno in there. I think even though there's no drums in it, you know, it's um there's something about it. Something about the weight of it. I think I'm trying not to dog on on DJing here because I love it and it's still a huge part of what I do. I can feel myself wanting to be in the studio more and more. And I think moving forward, that will continue. I've been, you know, I've been DJing for 20 years every weekend, a lot, you know, and um, and it's not that I'm bored of it, but I am getting older. And also, don't get me wrong, DJing right now for me is better than it ever has been. Hmm. The crowds, I feel better, everyone. It's almost like having been around, you know, in this capacity for over 10 years now, it feels as if people do know what I do. I don't feel like I have to convince people and I can just be entirely my own person up there. It is, it's gifted me this incredible life and I, yeah. I, I really cherish it. But yeah, like I said, I think studio days are going to become more frequent as I move forward, yeah. Part of the reason why I asked this is because in an interview you gave a few years ago, you said that you sometimes see clubs and dance music as a form of escapism and distraction. And that when touring really picked up for you before the pandemic, you you said you, quote, went too far down that route and were running away from a lot of things that you didn't want to focus on. Um, So has that changed? And without sounding too forward, I mean, what do you feel that you're running away from? Yeah, because I remember saying the original quote where I said about escaping the real world, not having to deal with your problems in a club. You know, mine's not a unique or original story by any means. You know, the road is incredible, but has a lot of pitfalls and it's very easy to live too fast and to never stop as well and to never even look at yourself and... Yeah, I stand by what the quote you just read there. It's, um, you know, after all this time, it's still a balance that I haven't got right. I'm still working on it. Mm. I'm definitely far more in a frame of mind now where I want to just be more present. Same with the studio. I love the touring side of things, but I never feel more myself than when I'm in the studio. I, I rarely leave the studio feeling like I've wasted a day. Like, in fact, never. Whereas I do feel like I've wasted a day if I've hit the road too hard for instance or something like that you know that that does feel like a waste to me these days but um one informs the other it's almost like one couldn't exist without the other though so you know it's it's important well i know that ultra truth part of it was about you said looking directly into darkness rather than running away from it yeah i think that's true and it's all a work in progress for me it definitely tell you what i think what happened really is Never thinking about DJing as a when I was growing up, but then somehow DJing became my job. I made Drone Logic my first album in 2013 before anyone knew who I was. You know, the classic debut album story, there's no expectation, so you're entirely free. And then all of a sudden, DJing became who I was. It was this unusual, kind of crazy, hectic life, and... It took me five years to make the follow-up album because everything was just turning too quickly. And I thought, 
oh well I'm a DJ now so I have to make a, a DJ led album I have to just make a, a techno album otherwise like what's nothing will make sense and it really scrambled my head and at the same time of course living that life it's so easy to just ignore your your real life because you're just okay next gig next gig next flight next next party blah blah, blah. see your friends all around the world so yeah ever since that point I've realized that I what I really really want to do is just make continue to make albums and to put them out into the world and like I said leave something that's going to remain even after I'm long gone and the older I get part of that involves just stopping and taking a fucking breath and looking at myself and realizing that there is much more to life than just being a DJ. And yeah, that that involves a lot of like, however you want to put it, self-work, self-discovery, whatever that means. That's what I mean about looking into the darkness. You know, it's, um, you just have to stop sometimes. Totally. You said at one point that there was a kind of naive energy yeah. in your early music making process, which I, I totally understand. And yeah. There was this joy in making music because no one knew who you yeah. were and you weren't trying to repeat a past success. Yeah. I mean, do you feel that that kind of joy is, is gone now that people have certain expectations? I think it's back. I know it disappeared at one point. And, you know, exactly from that last story I was talking about, I feel like I had a double whammy of it because Drone Logic blew up way bigger than I ever, ever imagined it would. It literally changed my life. And on top of that, though, before that ever since leaving university i've worked within music behind the scenes at a record shop or working for events companies and stuff and as much as i loved that part of my life i think seeing behind the curtain of it all also scrambled my brain a bit because then you start to second guess well you start to think that's popular because of xyz if i could just put some of that in that never ever ever works there were definitely moments where I, uh, yeah, all of that came together and I just, I felt lost. Yeah. What do I want to do? Like, you know, actually, I'll tell you what, ever since COVID, the joy has returned because I was forced to stop. You know, we were all forced to stop our lives. And no longer was... I, a DJ, I was just a person. Like everyone else is just a person. Not that I ever felt elevated above anyone else. That's not what I mean. I just mean for years I thought, well, if I stop doing this, then what am I? If, you know, what I'd be lost. But the dust settled and I was still here. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, but I can't travel. But tell you what, I can still make music. So that's why during lockdown, I put out two albums during lockdown. And... Ever since then, that's, that's how I want to define myself, you know. Then DJing returned and that feels better as well, you know. It all, in lots of ways, as difficult as that time was, it definitely helped me ultimately, I think, yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'm curious about also just like personally, because I also have a hand in nightlife, but I also have a hand in more like instrumental music. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes feel like these parts of my identity are fighting against each other mm. rather than working hand in hand. Do you ever feel that way or do you feel like, it seems like you've been able to bring them really into symbiosis. Yeah. 
I have now. Mm-hmm. That took time. I felt the same way. I felt, okay, like a moment of real honesty here is that Drone Logic launched me into clubs and festival lineups pretty quickly. And I sensed, and I think I'm actually correct in my in in what I thought here, that a lot of the a lot of the sort of dance music purists were like, who the hell is this guy? Mm. I'd never heard of him before. And then all of a sudden he's here. And it really bothered me because there was a moment where I thought, well, I just want to be accepted by particularly the techno crowd, really. It took a while, I think, because particularly in interviews, because like this one where I say, like, I didn't want to be, I didn't know what (laughs) DJing was, you know, really didn't understand it or never even considered it. I wasn't growing up listening to that sort of stuff. But um, it comes back to someone like Weatherall or Errol or all my heroes in that regard. You know, it's good to stick out like a sore thumb. It's good to it's good to stand out, and the fact that I was different, I've now learned. Of course, that's what's helped me. That's what makes me who I am. And you know, you've got to embrace it rather than fight it. I do think that the particularly the techno scene has this like obsession with purism sometimes, and. Even like like certain like how you look or how you sort of act online or any, anything, it just has this. Or you know when people say become obsessed with only playing vinyl or only using old equipment or whatever. From you know the more I learned about techno, like the origins of it were entirely based in futurism, and wow, what could come next? What could thirty years time even feel like or look like? They would, I'm sure that the early techno pioneers would never have, you know, restricted their themselves to being a certain way or looking a certain way. It's like, no, like, what what could the future hold? All just took time for me to really realize this. And like, well, what I can bring to the table is different to what anyone else can, much like any other artist can. So I just need to do what I do and keep going. That's it, really. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that there is... Maybe I'm just like more attuned to it now because of social media, but there is this like pressure to conform. And I, I sometimes listen to these mix series. Mm. It's like they all sound the same. It's like almost like yeah. all these techno artists are starting to emulate each other. And I get that there's pressure maybe to follow a trend. Um, you're right in that if you end up just doing what's true to you, mm. you don't end up becoming an anonymous yeah. name. In I said this before that, there are definitely producers out there who want to make records that sit almost anonymously in a in someone's live mix or a live set. And I can't think of anything that I want to do less than that in the world. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be an artist who you could confuse with anyone else or anything like that. And, you know, I fully agree with everything you're saying, but to sort of go further, I think there's also a strange thing happening at the moment where... No, it's DJs from all walks of life, really, who are complaining about other scenes. Oh, don't listen to the the kids listening to their hard and fast stuff. Or don't... Again, it's purism. It's not what this is about. And why do you fucking care what anyone else is doing? You shouldn't do. I don't think... Scenes are waves and they come and go and they're constantly changing. And that's what's good about it. You know, you can't 
go and tell an 18 year old kid that what they're listening to is not the right kind of dance music what right do you have for saying it who cares do you that's all you can ever do and again it comes back to like if you put all of your energy into just being yourself which is easier said than done trust me you can't lose you you literally can't lose you may be more popular one year than another year but life is not a, a straight line you know yeah. well i guess to wind things down a little bit <laughs> um so you have the release coming up on fabric yep what else are you working on right now i'm i'm working on a new album I'm, and i have another side project which I can't announce just yet, but um, I don't think I've ever made as much music as I'm making at the moment. And oh. <laughs> it feels the best it ever has felt to me. And like I said, I feel incredibly grateful to to be here, to still be here, and to be in a position where I can continue to make work that I hope will last beyond me. And, you know, a kid may discover it, an adult may discover a record, in a record shop and my my music sits alongside people who I look up to and I'm inspired by that's good enough for me yeah yeah is there anything you haven't tried yet either in your creative life or your personal life that you really want to do um I have made a few uh, tentative steps into the world of film scoring. Oh my gosh. And that's, that really feels like a, a goal for me. I would love to do, I've done a few short films and I'm working on a couple of things right now, but um, yeah, that's, that's the big one for me. I'd really love to, love to do that. It's been really great talking to you. Likewise, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for listening to this RA Exchange with Daniel Avery. My appreciation goes to Daniel for the great talk and to Guy Clark for his help editing. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Free Floating from Drone Logic. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next time, take care.